But Peter has been speaking, of course, to a group of Christians in the first century in the area of Asia Minor who are on the edges of society, find themselves uh, cast out in many ways, kind of rejected by the culture around them, seen as strange, seen at times as, uh, as insolent or even traitors to their uh, country. And so Peter is writing to these Christians to remind them of the truth that they belong to God, God has chosen them, and they are His, and that they are to remain faithful and to live holy lives in the midst of this inhospitable world. And again, as we pointed out throughout the series, it's not difficult to make a pretty quick and clear connection to the way that Christians in our own day, in our own place, are to live. We find ourselves in an increasingly inhospitable environment where the world around us thinks of Christians as backward and bigoted and uh, old-fashioned, and those are probably the more uh, polite ways that those ideas might be expressed. And Peter has urged Christians earlier in chapter 2, uh, excuse me, yeah, he just urged Christians to, to live honorably among the unbelieving world. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 12, the verses we looked at last week, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the unbelieving world around you, honorable. In such a way, he wants us to keep our, our, our lives honorable so that our good deeds might be plainly visible and might lead to the glory of God. Right? So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so you'll see your good deeds and give glory to God. God's glory is in you. That is the ultimate goal. And living holy lives, honorable lives, in public for the unbelieving world to see uh, is a way that we give testimony to Christ. And now, he's going to spell out what this honorable conduct will look like in real life. And beginning in our verses today and carrying largely throughout the rest of the letter, he will over and over again return to this theme. And the theme is submission. Submission. And of course, we're already really excited. I can tell how much you love to think about submitting to others. He speaks in our verses today of Christians submitting themselves to government, to civil government. Funds abound here. All right? uh, he goes on later in chapter 2 to speak about servants being submissive to their masters. In chapter 3, to wives in submitting to their husbands. In chapter 3, verse 22, he speaks, in fact, of all of the universe and all of the spiritual powers and authorities being subjected to Christ. And then in chapter 5, verse 5, he speaks about the church being subject to their elders. And so this theme of submission occurs now throughout this letter. And it takes, it, it has a role here of giving us the shape of what honorable conduct looks like in a Christian life. And this cuts against every instinct that we have. Because humans are rebels at heart. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority in the garden. You shall not eat the fruit of that tree. And that is the very thing that they did, right? So Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority. And every human sense has an allergy to authority, right? For someone to suggest you are expected to do this, or to be here, or to live this way, or to speak this way, or to dress like that, we rebel against that. There's something deep in our heart that is embedded there that pushes a 
under authority. And we have, on top of that, a strong inclination toward independence and self-rule. I call my own shots. I live my own life, my own truth, like that. When God saved us, he overcame our rebellious wills, praise God, and opened our eyes to the beauty of Christ and the goodness of the gospel and burst in our hearts a new hate for his wise and loving command. In a real sense, that's what salvation is. What does it mean to be saved? Well, you could say it in one way. It means that God has overcome our rebellion against his authority and given us a new heart that longs to live under his good and loving rule. And so, it shouldn't surprise us that willing, humble submission of oneself to those whom God has placed in authority over us is one of the hallmarks of Christian faithfulness. Christian faithfulness will look like willing, humble submission to those that God has placed in authority over us. And we find and turn our attention today in the verses we'll look at the authority of civil government, that is, of earthly human governmental institutions. Let's read uh, verses 13 through 17. Remember, he just urged Christians, abstain from the passions of your flesh and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they'll see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, here is the first part of expression of what that looks like. Again, in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is a verse we will consider today. The big idea that I see in these verses is that Christians give honor to Jesus Christ by submitting to government authority. Christians give honor to Jesus Christ by submitting to government authority. There may not be a more sort of difficult, hence, fraught topic of conversation in our day and, uh, and place than the topic of government and politics. And of course, we're now entering, well, we've been in it, but we're entering it in sort of hot and heavy mode here, uh, an election season where there's candidates being put forward for president and, and other offices and all of the, 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 that, the non-stop news media talking about it all the time and everybody's social media posts ranting about this or that political view or this or that candidate and conversation gets very heated very quickly when we start talking about what is the government, what is the role of government. How should citizens live in relation to the government?
government. And that is not I mean, necessarily have to do with particularly Christian. So how should a Christian think about government? And obviously that is our intention today is to gain some clarity. This is not an exhaustive view of all that could be said about government and politics and Christians, but Peter gives us a very clear window here into what God intends for the government to accomplish and how Christians are to live in relation to it. And the plain, simple command that begins this passage in verse 13 is be subject to every human institution. And you see that he means government, whether that's emperor or the government. All right? And so be subject to every human institution. So right away, the command something that doesn't sit well with. I don't want to be subject to any institution, and yet that is exactly what God told us to do. But in fact, it's interesting if you think about the context that just ran up to this, right? In verse 9, he called us a holy nation. In verse 10, he called us God's people. So we're a holy nation. We, we the church, belong to God as his people. And then in verse 11, he told us that we are sojourners and exiles. Some translations say strangers and aliens. And so, we might be inclined to think that when it comes to our relationship to government, that Peter might exhort us uh, to have no allegiance to earthly institutions whatsoever. You're God's people. You're aliens, right? You're a holy nation. So, we might think, well, maybe Christians are supposed to set up our own societies and, like, live in contents and be completely disconnected from the world around us and not relate to it whatsoever. But Peter says, no, that's not the direction he goes at all. We are not to separate ourselves or to see ourselves as out from under the authority of human government. Rather, we should willingly place ourselves under that authority, gladly submitting to the boundaries and penalties of its laws. If you're wondering about the scope of this command, Look at the very next phrase. Be subject to every human institution, and there's this expansion, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. We might say in our context in the U.S., both the federal government and the state and local governments, right? So different branches, different levels of government. And in the Roman Empire, of course, Peter is saying, be subject to every expression of this human government live under the authority, willingly, humbly, of human government. And the same would be true of us. But whatever the particular sort of national expression, right, the shape of government differs from place to place and time to time, um, the instruction seems pretty broad in its field. Like whatever the, the particular level of government or the shape of its authority structure, submit to it. The Christians are to submit to government. In one way, this is all quite simple. In one way of looking at this, we could simply say to submit to government means things like this. Honor the requirements and boundaries established by law. Right? Work for a living, don't Follow traffic law. Don't purchase or sell illegal substances. Right? We know what the law says, and so we live under its uh, requirements and boundaries. It means things like seeking to be faithful to our particular specific duties and privileges in our governmental system. That means 
things like voting, jury duty, maybe even holding public office, doing community service, right? There are all these various ways that we can live under the authority of our government. Of particular interest during this season, pay your taxes, right? Tax day is coming up. Not anybody's favorite day, probably, but this is instituted by God. And you might be tempted to pledge a bit on your tax return, right? Because we want to get the, the biggest uh, refund of the possible can. Don't do it. Right? Godly submission to the government would require honesty and integrity in the information that you provide on your tax form. So some, in some ways, these are simple sort of expressions of here's how we live under this system. Honestly, frankly, humbly, right? We, we cooperate, if you will, as a citizen. These are all simple, straightforward ways that we can be subject to the emperor in representing human government. And he goes on to tell us what the purpose of government is, which is really important. This is why government exists in God's mind, in God's plan. This is what government is supposed to do. Look at verse 14, the second half of it. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's why government exists. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Paul says much the same thing back in Romans chapter 13. We tell them there. After he said the very same thing about every person who is subject to the governing authorities, wow, it sounds like they're listening to the same Lord. He says in Romans 13, 4, he, he personifies the government, of government is God's servant for your good. How often do you think of government as God's servant? You think of government as for your good. Usually we have some more negative thoughts and, and ideas about that. He says, if you do wrong, you get afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's the point of government. God instituted human civil government for the purpose of punishing evil and celebrating good, praising those who do good and punishing those who do evil. And in this way, civil governments are a form of God's common grace to humankind. And just like any gift, just like any good thing that God creates, it can be twisted, it can be abused. We've seen governments and different kinds of governments throughout history have been used for great evil, for the oppressing of people, and for the actual perpetrating of evil instead of what God intends, for it to be a restrainer of evil. The purpose of it is to reward good and restrain evil in society. John Piper says this, but the proper aim of government is to dam up the river of evil that flows from the heart of man so that it does not flood the world with anarchy. Right? We know that evil that lives in the heart of human beings, and if there were no boundaries with God's authority, sort of to put in place just in normal human society, it would be complete chaos and mayhem and murder all the time. And so God intends 
human government to restrain evil. I think there's an implication here that's important for us to note, and that's this. Morality is the foundation for civil law. Civil government, by God's design, exists in order to enforce a moral code to punish that which is evil and to praise that which is good. People will always say, you can't legislate morality. In a real sense, the only thing you can legislate is morality. Is what else are you legislating? You're saying something is right and something is wrong. That is what laws do. That's why they exist. To punish evil and to praise that which is good. So the question really becomes, whose morality are we legislating? What version of right and wrong are we putting into our law? That becomes a question of whether a government is just or unjust. We've seen all manner of difficulties that human civilizations have with that very thing. And so a particular challenge emerges when what is called good and what is called evil begin to be reversed. When human institutions call good, what God's word calls evil, and begin to enforce that inverted morality, God's people have a hopeless dilemma on their hands. And in some ways, we can find ourselves there today. If you think about in the past, things like slavery, that used to be protected by law. The Jim Crow laws in the South about segregation and the first of the three-fifths compromise that would regard African Americans as like three-fifths of the human being. That stuff was in the law. That's an obviously unjust, wicked law. They called something evil good and twisted it around and enforcing it in the law. And there were obvious implications for how Christians should respond in that day. In our own day, we get things like abortion. It's celebrated as a women's rights Same-sex marriage, assisted suicide, threat for liberty on various fronts. I can't say much on the time or the scope here to say very much about how exactly we should engage on these matters. But the, to the extent that the state violates God's clear command, there is a time for what's called civil disobedience. Think of Peter and James in Acts chapter 4. They were brought before a council and they demanded that they stop preaching Jesus. They were creating all kinds of havoc in the city of people returning to Christ and all these kind of wicked businesses were then losing money because people were being converted and turning from their sins. They said, you need to stop preaching Christ. And Peter says to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But as for us, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. So there comes a time for civil disobedience. There comes a time for, for peaceful protest, right? That even that somehow can fall under the umbrella of of, of a humble, respectful submission to government, even as we, even as we demand otherwise. But nevertheless, the purpose of human government is to, is to, is to punish evil and to praise those who do good. And all this raises the question, why should we be submissive to government? Because we have compliant personalities? Just uh, do what we tell them, this is how it is. Because we're afraid to be punished? 
probably something you said for that. Another question, what is it about this passage that colors how Christians typically are to relate to human government? Is our relationship to government supposed to be different from that of every other citizen? In some ways, a lot of what I've said so far would be a welcome assembly talk at an elementary middle school, right? All of the laws, you can through being a citizen, right? Everybody wants to do like that. So there's nothing that's been explicitly Christian here so far. The answer to those questions, I think, is in the four-word phrase in verse 13 that I've actually left out. And that's it. Look back at the beginning of verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For the Lord's sake. Are we to be subject for the emperor's sake? No. For the glory of Rome? No. For the sake of the Lord, that is, Jesus Christ. It is for His honor that we are to submit ourselves to human for the Lord's sake means that our obedience is to be motivated by our love for Christ and by our desire to see Him honored and praised. You don't have to be a patriot to be a good citizen if the honor of Jesus Christ is the fuel for your submission. For some people, love of country by itself is enough to motivate them to serve and to obey the law. That's not true for everyone. And even though for whom it is true, there ought to be a deeper motivation to our obedience and submission to civil government, namely our love for Jesus Christ. That might sound a little strange. Why would my love for Jesus lead me to submit myself to a human institution of government? Well, I think that by calling it a human institution, as Peter does here, the subject for the Lord's sake of every human institution, I think by calling it that, he reminds us that earthly nations and societies are temporal and subservient. Right? They're not eternal, nor are they ultimate. God's kingdom is eternal and ultimate, while even the strongest and wealthiest human societies are fleeting. And Rome, we know, collapsed. The empire of Rome did not last, even though it was powered as the great and glorious, unending power of the world. The Roman Empire didn't last. As Americans, we might be inclined to think the U.S. of A. will stand forever, but that's not true either. No human institution, no human nation is forever. And they are subservient to God and His kingdom. Paul reminds Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for the Lord's sake means that our allegiance to an earthly nation is to be, at best, secondary to our allegiance to Christ's kingdom. And in fact, our obedience and allegiance to this human institution of civil government is an expression of our devotion to Christ and His kingdom. Because we're citizens of an eternal kingdom that is being built and will one day be finally realized, we can give ourselves under that authority to the authority of civil government. 
Our submission to governing authority is to be for the Lord's sake. And we've got to be careful. We need to be careful that our primary allegiance does not shift one inch from Christ and onto any particular party or figure. The moment that we become entrenched in stubborn, blind support of a person or a party, that is the moment that our allegiance has shifted away from Christ. We are, in that entrenchment, submitting ourselves to government for its own sake instead of the Lord. No political figure is beyond criticism or correction, and no party platform is beyond scrutiny. I recognize the call is to submit and obey, but I think sometimes the tendency of American Christians, particularly if I'm say white American Christians, is to so associate our faith with a political party or a champion of that political party that we take our eyes off of Christ and we are now serving primarily as the allegiance of our country or our political affiliation. And that's dangerous. That is not what we're called let me go one step further. Since our submission to government should be for the Lord's sake, any political alliance or commitment that damages Christian unity is out of step with the gospel. If you find it impossible to fellowship sincerely with Christians who hold different positions or who vote for different candidates, then you have elevated human government to a place of supremacy that only Christ should hold. I see it all the time. The way that Christians on different sides of the sort of political aisle speak to and about one another is against Christian unity, against the heart of Jesus for his people, and make assumptions, very unfair assumptions, not only about the people on the other side of the aisle, but about the sort of purity and wholeness and integrity of their own party, platform, or candidate, leader. So by all means, vote, hold positions, if that's something that the Lord calls you to, but for the sake of Christ and his church, not that very extent. Be very careful about that. So our obedience to government, our submission to civil government is for the Lord's sake, for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Here's another way Maybe the chief way, in fact, one that Peter points to most plainly here, another way that our submission to the authority of government is about the honor of Christ. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So the God-ordained effect of Christian honorable submission to governing authority is that many in the unbelieving world around us would see our good deeds and give glory to God. Back in verse 12, he said that very thing, right? He's referring here again to the Gentiles and the unbelievers around us who charge the church with evil. And whereas in verse 12, he had said that they might see your good deeds and, and glorify God, here he says, that they might see your obedience and be put to silence, right? That the ignorance of foolish people would be put to silence. In other words, the call is to demonstrate that these charges, the charge
charges of the unbelieving world toward Christians, toward the church, would be found to have no basis in reality. Because it should be evident that Christians are living as honorable, law-abiding citizens. Our obedience and participation in the civil government of our nation is an expression of our obedience and submission to Christ and ought to, in itself, give testimony that our lives are honorable and without blame in the ways that the world is charging us. When the world calls us bigots and hateful and judgmental, they should see by our lives and, in fact, by our very submission to the government that these things are not so. This is strategy on God's part. He's placed the human government and he's called Christians to submit to it for the purpose of silencing critics and of bringing glory to God. He wants us to obey our earthly government out of love and reverence for Christ, but he intends to use our worshipful obedience as beautiful citizens to disarm the threatening accusations of the world against the church. He wants the church to be holy and blameless and to give a clear, competent testimony to the glory of Jesus in a way that we would have citizens of our nation. And so here I think is the implication for us. Since God's strategy, as it were, is for the world's slander of Christians to be silenced, Christians' submission to governing authorities should not merely be passive obedience, like I don't break any terrible laws, but active good. We should be more than neutral. I haven't broken laws yet. We should be actively pursuing good. In fact, that's what he says government does, right? It punishes those who do evil and praises those who do good. Let's go beyond mere law keeping. Let's focus on doing good and good that is tangible and visible to the world. For the Lord's sake, love your neighbor. For the Lord's sake, feed the poor. For the Lord's sake, volunteer at a local family shelter. For the Lord's sake, promote kingdom-shaped charities and causes. For the Lord's sake, speak honorably and compassionately about others, even others with whom you disagree, perhaps even vehemently so. We should focus on doing good in our society and thereby point the watching world to Jesus Christ. May the Lord forbid that our the way that we behave as citizens of this nation should ever leave a bad taste in someone's mouth about Christ and his church and his God. If we've interacted with somebody or lived in such a way that Christ looks bad, that the gospel looks unappealing, that the church looks wicked, we have failed as it important in verse 16 he gives this instruction that seems on the surface to almost be contradictory he says live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of God wait a minute you just said to live as people who are free and then in the next verse you said live as servants of God how can I be both free and a servant? Right? The freedom that Americans celebrate seems to be this uh, 
and I get this total independence, complete autonomy. I'm not accountable to anyone or anything. And in fact, I think a lot of that is what comes, uh, is what that phrase, not using freedom as a cover up for evil, probably means. I'm so free that I can do whatever I want. And there's all manner of sin and wickedness that falls under that category. I'm free. You can't judge me. You can't say it, right? It's a free country, right? Um, but let's not use our freedom as an excuse for wickedness. But nevertheless, live as people who are free and live as servants of God. The freedom of the Christian is not a total throwing off of restraint. It is the ability, by God's grace, to live by His command. A little bit of a paradox. The freedom of a Christian is the ability to live gladly under His authority, to follow His command. Dog trainers speak of the ultimate goal of training to be off-leash obedience. That is, as you might imagine, a dog is so obedient that it can be trusted to be disconnected from leash and line. So the training in that sense, in that case, has, has advanced through basic, intermediate, and advanced levels to the point that the dog can be entrusted with the freedom of being disconnected from any leash or line whatsoever. The trainer of that dog is confident that when he gives the dog a command, come, stay, that the dog will quickly and freely obey. And that confidence allows the dog trainer to keep the dog free from any leash or line. In other words, the freest dog is the obedient dog. The one who doesn't have to be held back and controlled by a line or a leash is the dog who responds to his master's voice with obedience. It's much the same way for Christians. The freedom provided us by Christ's death and resurrection isn't the freedom to live as we please or express our true selves. The freedom afforded us by Christ is the freedom to live under his good and loving authority. The more we grow in our obedience to him, the more of that freedom we experience. Quote John Piper again, he says that as Christians, we, we in effect, say to governing authorities, we are free in respect to you, but slaves of God. We will submit, not because you have power, but because our king commands it, for the honor of his institution of civil government. Yet our submission is an honor to you, because under God and from God, you bear the authority to enforce the laws of the land. Our submission to government is for the Lord's sake. It's out of reverence and obedience God, and for the honor of Jesus Christ that we submit ourselves to the laws of this land. And he wraps this up in verse 17 with this, uh, this progression. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think you can see a natural progression there. So, honor all people. Right? There, there's a way that we should regard others as bearing God's image and as worthy of the dignity. And we won't belittle them with our words. And, and we won't hate them or, or hurt them with our actions or our attitudes. We should hold everybody, every person in honor in some respect. But they have to love the brotherhood. Who's that? That's the church. The brothers and sisters 
in Christ. We, we do more than merely honor brothers and sisters in Christ. We love one another. And it's already called us to back in chapter 1. Right? To, to love one another with a sincere, brotherly love and earnestly from a pure heart. Right? We love the brothers. Honor all people. When it comes to the church, other Christians love. Right? Be committed in love to them. What's the next level? Fear God. Right? God is king. God is ruler. God is Lord. He is the one we are to fear. He does not say, fear the emperor. Fear the president. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I think that last phrase there puts the, the emperor and human government there on the same level as that first rule, which honor all people. We honor the emperor. We honor the president. And he's a person. Because he falls into that category of all people, right? We don't necessarily honor the president uh, or, or the king or whatever because necessarily of his particular views or character or whatever. We honor him because he is a human being. God has, because he's been given an authority by God that we are to submit ourselves to our brethren or Christ. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God on you. Please make sure we don't get those things. Fear God, honor you, not the other way around. It's worth pointing out that the government in the day that Peter is writing this is not a just and holy government. It's, he has seen in his lifetime governors and political authorities slaughtering children. He's seen them having their own family members put to death because they were afraid of someone sort of trying to steal their throne. Like, these are, these are not holy, good people, generally speaking. And in fact, Peter himself will die at the hands of the Roman Emperor in Europe. He will go on a rampage against Christians, martyring and persecuting and killing them by the thousands. And Paul does much the same thing in Romans 13. He suffers for the Lord's sake, the government, right? They are God's servant for your good. And these are not upstanding, holy, Christian leaders, right? And even in that sense where the government is so obviously broken, they're able to say, as Christians, because our allegiance to Christ and because our citizenship is in a kingdom that's coming, we can live with this. We can live under this oppressive, broken, sinful authority because it's not the end. It's not the ultimate. And we have a higher purpose and a calling. We live under the authority here, broken as it is, for the sake of the kingdom that Well, I think that Jesus Christ provides for us the best example of this position. Jesus Christ, of course, is instituted government. In John 19, if you want to turn where you want to, in John 19, Jesus finds himself before a Roman governor named Pilate. And the crowd of uh, Jewish leaders who have feared and hated Jesus have conspired against him and they've got him now in front of Pilate and they're demanding his execution. And so Pilate is questioning Jesus. And he's trying to determine his guilt or innocence. I think he'd love to be able to say, there's no reason for execution here, right? We, we, can move, we can move past it. So he's, he's questioning Jesus and Jesus is not really responding to it. And so Pilate gets frustrated with him in uh, 
chapter 19 of John, verse 10, he says, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Which on the face of it is true. Because he is a leader in this governmental system and authority has been given him over life and death in a case like this. And so he's reminding Jesus, I have the authority to take your life from you or to spare you. Kind of saying, you are cooperating. What Jesus responds in verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And so while Jesus could have spoken a word of self-defense, rescued himself from the torture and shame of the cross, instead yielded himself to the authority of this Roman official and went along with the plan that the crowd to crucify Why? Because the plan for his crucifixion was not ultimately the Jews, but the Father's plan. Because the authority of Pilate to deliver him to death was not ultimately his own authority, but God's authority granted to him for carrying out his and so in submitting himself to the unjust Roman government, he went to the cross and became our substitute, our sacrifice, so that in his death we might live. The next time that you're inclined or, or tempted to sort of stand up and pound on a pulpit and demand your right, American man my right, remember Jesus who willingly submitted himself to an unjust system of government for the purpose of carrying out God's plan. Praise God for that.